Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and our guest for this episode is Pastor Sandra Maria Van Opstel. I first met Sandra about 15 years ago when we were both campus ministry staff for InterVarsity in Chicagoland. During this time, I got to know Sandra a little bit better when we were both in Mexico City together for an urban ministry conference. Having had the privilege of getting to know Sandra, I have found her to be a person who is consistent in her pursuit of justice, speaking out prophetically as the Spirit leads, and also a person who has great empathy for others. Sandra is a second-generation Latina and currently pastors at Grace and Peace Church on the west side of Chicago. She lives with her husband and two boys and is a preacher, liturgist, and activist, reimagining the intersection of worship and justice. We hope you'll find this conversation meaningful as we discuss everything from remembering to make lunches to starting a revolution. Sandra, thanks so much for being with us today. Can you start by telling a little bit about yourself, your educational background, and how you ended up in your current vocation? Yeah, well, I grew up uh, attending church, and I never in a million years thought that I would be vocationally in the church as a pastor. Um, I imagine myself being a a famous singer. You know, like my my dream, I always tell people my dream was to be like the next Gloria Stefan or the next Selena, a crossover artist in both cultures, singing in English and in Spanish, always being around, never super popular, but always around that kind of like um, staple. Mm -hmm. So I went into school actually to be for vocal performance. So I I studied music, I studied business. Um, and in that process, I became a student leader and a participant of InterVarsity, and the rest is history. So <laughs> when I graduated from college, uh, I became an InterVarsity campus volunteer, and I did that while I worked at a consulting firm in corporate training. And I think it was similar, you know, kind of people skills and training has a component of really delivering a message that kind of uh, similar to, I think, not performance, but communication mm-hmm. and continued in the work of, of volunteering with students with university and eventually came on staff full-time with university. And I was working with students from 1996 uh, to 2013. So that was very much a part of my early vocation was being in an environment outside of the church, but really working to mobilize Um, students to understand the intersection of their faith and their vocation. And I did all of that, um, obviously, without, well, I did all of that without a seminary degree. And Mm -hmm. then um, when I was finishing my time with InterVarsity, I was at a conference with my husband, actually, at the time. And he said, my husband, we were recently married, and we were at a conference. And he said, you know, I really believe that God is calling you to something bigger. And I think that you need to have more training because it will make you feel more comfortable. So he said, you know, you're very gifted and I see where God is leading you. And I just feel like if you had more training, you'd feel more confident in what you bring to the table. And so he really encouraged me. Um, This was a conference we attended in 2006. And in 2007, I started taking classes towards the end of my university time, part-time kind of at first, and then eventually full-time until um, I graduated with my MDiv while I was um, finishing my time with InterVarsity. 
Okay. And then, so what are you doing now? So when I graduated with my MDiv, I thought, you know, I've, I've spent all this time on, on the campus. Um, I spent all this time in directing the urban project in Chicago and really helping students understand how they could be a witness on the campus and how their faith could intersect with their vocation. Then this whole kind of season with the Chicago urban program, where I was trying to help students understand how the church can transform the city um, and how we as believers and as Christians could really have an impact in making a difference in the spaces and the places that we occupy. So uh, not only transforming the campus, not only transforming your workplace, but where you live and being present and really transforming that as well. So that was awesome. And then I felt like I really want to influence pastors. And the only way that I can do that is by becoming a pastor myself, because I had worked as a lay leader in the church. I had preached in the church. I had led worship in the church. I had developed particularly uh, women and younger women going into the pastorate and into church positions, but I had never actually vocationally been full-time with the church. So when I left InterVarsity staff, it was to take a call into the local church when I became a pastor at Grace and Peace Community Church. And so I was the executive pastor at Grace and Peace for five years supervising staff, coaching staff, you know, doing all the things executive pastors do, involved in the preaching and in the care of the church and in the kind of um, developing system and structures for the church to really to be a witness in, in our city. And I became a pastor there because Grace and Peace had been one of our locations for the Chicago Urban Program. So right. I had been a Northwestern staff bringing student leaders into the city to see how Grace and Peace transformed its neighborhood. And then I had been the Chicago Urban Program director receiving Northwestern students and other students in connecting them with Grace and Peace uh, and churches like it to see how the church transforms the neighborhood. And then I became actually a pastor at Grace and Peace. So I I moved all the way from one end to the (laughs) other end. And I have really enjoyed seeing the difference of being in a parachurch ministry on the campus in that mobilization experience, and then being a pastor, mobilizing congregants and caring for congregants in a local church community. And so I feel like both of those have been necessary to shape me, to teach me, and to prepare me and equip me for ministry long-term. So this past year, I became a preaching pastor at Grace and Peace because a lot of the traveling and kind of itinerant preaching that I was doing didn't allow me to be present for the daily experience of the church and the daily responsibilities. And that's very important for especially the type of church that we have that's in the community and there's things happening every single day. So, yeah, so that's, that's how I ended up in the space that I'm at. So I'm still a pastor at Grace and Peace and I do a lot of preaching, speaking, training, consulting, Mm -hmm. and really mobilizing um, this generation for understanding what, Um, Amos 5 and Micah 6 call us to to really reconcile and be at the intersection of worship and justice. And I'm a mom and (laughs) I have two four-year-olds, so I'm doing a lot right now. That's Yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) Two four-year-olds. Yeah. Woo. So speaking of justice and worship, you wrote a book a few years ago titled The Next Worship, Glorifying God in a Diverse World. Actually, when I was thinking about your book, I hadn't read it yet. And I did a search for it, knowing that I was going to interview you. And I thought the title of it was Justice and Worship, just based on who I know you to be from our time in Chicagoland University, you know, almost 10, 15 years ago. So anyway, it's not called Justice and Worship, but would you share a little bit more about what you mean about the intersection 
of justice and worship, both in weekly worship services and also everyday life. Yeah, so the next worship is really about glorifying God in a diverse world. It's it's a book that was written to kind of capture the decade of work that I had done, both in InterVarsity and outside of InterVarsity, gathering groups of worship leaders from diverse spaces and asking what would it look like if we came together across our differences and acknowledged and honored and embodied our differences in the worship experience. So its main goal is really to teach people, whatever church you're in, whether it's intentionally multi-ethnic or not, that we all have a call to embody the diversity of the global church in our worship as a way of being discipled. The aim of that book is really to say, how do we create experiences of worship that allow us to extend hospitality and stand in solidarity and embody mutuality with one another. So we would create a worship space and a worship experience within our local communities that communicates to people, you are welcome here. Uh, We welcome you and we stand with you and we need you and we honor you. So that's the aim of that book. And it was written primarily for pastors, church leaders, movement leaders that design worship, basically, um, experiences, mm-hmm. congregational worship experiences in their local churches or in their communities or in, on their campuses. And so what that book led me to then, and it's interesting that you say, you know, you thought the book would be called Justice and Worship because I'm working on one right now that's at the intersection of justice and worship that's really coming out of the book of Amos, the book of Micah, uh, more of the prophetic Old Testament prophetic literature, the call that Jesus gives in Luke 4, that in order to have true Christian worship, it results in an embodiment and action of justice. That, you know, coming to into a building and singing songs to God and learning about God and, and praying to God, but then not living justly and not living rightly in the world is actually just self-help. It's actually just about you and about how you want to experience God and what you want out of out of your your time with him, but it's really not about the character of God. And um so this book is really trying to call people to stop singing songs and to stop spending money gathering in places that don't mobilize people for compassion, for justice, um, and for rightness in the world, for mission, basically. And so um, I think the mission of worship, was, which was the first book I wrote on worship, was really looking at the intersection of kind of global mission and worship. The second mm-hmm. one is looking more at like, how do we embody a true diversity and reconciliation in worship, in solidarity in worship? And the third one, I think, is really pressing forward to say, then what is the result of your worship? Some songs and a really right. good experience on a Sunday morning that doesn't affect how you live your live your life or how you, the type of consultant that you are or the type of mother or father that you are or the type of teacher that you are or even as a professor in academia, the type of things that you teach people about who God is and what's, what he's about. So that book is really, I think, hoping to get to what Amos 5 and what Micah 6 do, which is really teach us that you cannot have worship without justice and that you can't have justice that's not filled and fueled by worship because then it just becomes angry power grabs. Mm. Yeah, I like that. That And that book is forthcoming? Yeah, I'm still working on the proposals. <laughs> I have to have time between the packing of the lunches and the writing of the curriculum for class and all the other things that I'm doing. So yes, please call me about it. Ask me. 
Absolutely. We're looking forward to it. But yeah, pack those lunches and, and do all the other things <laughs> as well. You got to find that that space in between everything else to write a book. No problem, right? <laughs> no so, problem. So I really appreciated the first book, how it offers both kind of a, almost a manual, maybe not a manual, but a practical kind of guideline for how to have diversity in worship. Um, and you talk in that book about those concepts you mentioned earlier, hospitality, solidarity, and mutuality. Can you say a little bit more about those concepts and how you feel like they can work together to create unity? Yes. Um, It's really interesting that you asked that because the book was written over three years ago and I'm still doing, like I have three events this spring where I'm going to meet with churches and pastors to to basically consult and facilitate discussion around this. And it's almost always about chapter three, which is where Mm -hmm. I talk about worship and reconciliation as it relates to those three things. And yeah, so it's really interesting that you bring that up. The aim that I had in really looking at those three areas was to say, you know, a lot of times when people talk about diverse worship, they actually just want to have like, oh, hey, we want to, you know, there's an increased population of fill in the blank in in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. How can I reach out to them? Or you know, we're building this multi-ethnic church and we're, you know, located in in the middle of an African-American community and a Latino community. How can we develop our worship that really reaches out to them? So almost all the questions that are asked in that area are kind of utilitarian and pragmatic. You know, they're how can we develop worship that reaches out to people? How can we have hospitality? And so my aim was to say, we need to be able to move the conversation beyond hospitality to what does it mean to stand with one another as brothers and sisters in the global church? Because the reality is most of our churches are homogeneous, you know, 80 some percent of churches are homogeneous. So if someone says to me like, Oh, we have a Korean congregation. We're not really trying to be diverse in our worship outside of, you know, the songs that are familiar to us or that we enjoy. Then my pushback to them would be, it's, it's not about you wanting to be a multi-ethnic church. It's about, you understanding that theologically we are a part of a global church and therefore we ought to live in a way that brings solidarity in that experience. So we oftentimes do it in churches through the form of prayer, like um, something happens around the world, a tragedy, and then we pray about it, which is great. We should, Mm -hmm. but what would it look like to actually design something in worship aside from uh, kind of an extemporaneous prayer where you would bring in a worship song or an element of worship or something at the Lord's table, the Lord's supper that would bring in aspects of that culture as a way to connect with people more create creatively or artistically, because we know that it's not information that changes people or mobilizes people. It's, it's metaphor, it's narrative, it's artistry, it's creativity, where people can almost tangibly encounter that community. So what would it look like for us to stand in solidarity? So examples of that would be, for example, at Urbana 15, um, when Erna um, Hackett and the team led an evening of worship, and it was, you know, songs from kind of spirituals and gospel choir songs and more modern kind of, you know, modern Black church songs, but it was it wasn't just singing songs. It was actually telling a story about where those songs come from mm-hmm. and helping the community within that space 
stand in solidarity with not only the past, but the current struggle of that community. So I think that that solidarity would communicate to people, hey, we, we stand with you. Our church, um, we're, we're located here in the space outside of contact with you, but we, we stand with you in what you're, what you're going through. And we do that in the form of prayer and worship. And I think mutuality goes beyond that to say, we really need them. So what would it look like to say, oh, the global church, you know, it's not just nice, it's necessary. Uh, We're in need of the theology that comes from places of suffering and marginalization. We're in need of songs that are written from those spaces. We're in need of theological understanding from those spaces because there's an aspect of their experience with God and the truth of God that they understand in better ways than we do. So I think the piece of mutuality would be, for example, in our church, we wanted to call people to solidarity and um, action and advocacy for refugees. And the way that we did that was to bring a song that's the Lord's Prayer that was written in Arabic originally. So it's got the melodic kind of the melody and the, the music comes from the Middle East, but the words were translated into English so people could sing them. And so as people heard the song sung, as people saw or heard certain stories, they were able to engage. There's this, not only this crisis that's happening um, with our Syrian refugee brothers and sisters, but also we hear their voices differently. We encounter them differently as we sing their music. Mm. Um, And so we're in need of hearing that from them as a way of being formed spiritually. There are lots of people standing in solidarity with the margins, or with people who are different than them, but they don't always learn to receive from them. That becomes very much like, you're a project, we help you, we're the helper, you're the helpie, you know, we, we're we the ones who have something to offer, you receive. But mutuality says everyone has something to offer and everyone receives. So I think those are the three concepts that that really lead us to places of reconciliation and true justice. So in this work that I'm doing right now, I'm really pushing into what does it look like to be in mutuality with one another? What does true justice look like? What does it look like to work together? And how do our worship practices and our liturgy fuel that work? So yeah, it's more than just hearing someone's story and even more than saying, we value who you are, but the next step of, I actually need you in my life and in my spiritual formation. And everyone is needed in each other's lives for the church to be who the church is supposed to be. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about all the, think about all the, the times we tell people when we're doing um, inductive Bible study, for example, the more diverse the group, the better equipped you are to get to the central truth of the passage, mm-hmm. because everybody's looking at it from their own social and cultural location. So if I'm studying, I always tell people this is like my, I think the clearest examples, because if you want to study the, really understand what's happening in the book of Ruth, and you're going to sit in an air conditioned space with a bunch of educated people who've never been refugees or, or, or aliens or foreigners or, or, or dispossessed in some way, and you're going to try to get to what is God saying in this passage and what does this mean about who God is and who we are, you're going to miss the mark because we have never had those experiences. But if you gather into that room, women who have experienced 
what Ruth and Naomi were experiencing in that passage. And then you study the passage. You ask, what is God doing in this passage? You come to a more vibrant understanding of, of what's happening. So I always tell people who better to let it, to help us understand what, what the book of Ruth is about a man in an air conditioned office, writing a commentary or a group of women who are refugees and immigrants who've gone through that experience who better. Right. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Those women. Yeah. So, but what, imagine if we could put those groups together, imagine that then, you know? Mm. So I think that's what I'm aiming for is not to say education is bad. I have lots of it. I'm getting more, but we need one another across socioeconomic differences. We need one another across racial and ethnic differences. We need one another across cultural differences. And so it's not to say, Hey, mutuality is about like, even though we come from different spaces, we can still get along. Mutuality says, because we come from different spaces, we are better together. Mm. And that's what I'm really hoping we can understand. I think about that as a theologian. I think about that as a pastor. I think about that as a mother, that we really need to be intentional to practice mutuality in all that we do, including the work of justice, which oftentimes can be relegated to advocacy in an office in DC with a bunch of people who don't really experience the impact of the actual injustice they're trying to deal with. So we need to be able to have people that are most impacted by those policies in the room as we're shaping things. Absolutely. So Going back to the idea of needing one another, the church right now, and by church, I mean big C, capital C church, including many different denominations, Southern Baptist, Evangelicals, Methodists, Roman Catholic are facing scandals and splits. Um, and I'm sure there are more that I haven't named, right? I hear many people say that they are, they're leaving church and that church is quote unquote, where you find it. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the importance of being part of corporate worship on a regular basis. Yes, I think it's biblical to be in community on a regular basis. (laughs) I think the first thing I would say is the first thing that we need to do in North America as we see these things happening is to recognize that we are a a tiny, minute fraction of the global church. Mm. So I think the last time I checked the statistic was 11% of the global church is located in North America and Europe. That would be the Western, you know, hemisphere. Right. Um, That part of it. So that would mean that 89% of the church is somewhere else. And so when people typically want to leave, they're typically responding to issues that are happening in North America. So to leave the church, I'm not sure what that means. To be a Christian is to be a part of the church. I guess I'm coming from the Roman Catholic perspective right now, my life. And so some of our own issues are global, like, for example, the sexual abuse scandal or crisis. Mm -hmm is not just limited to North America, which uh, says something more about the system of the Roman Catholic Church in general. Yeah, yeah. However, uh, so yeah, but I, I can hear what you're saying that some of it is limited to just that particular local church that a person might leave, where, whereas other people might be leaving, you know, the Methodist church or whatever, Roman Catholic church, because of a wider, more global. Yes. So, so anyway, back to biblical basis for corporate worship or maybe not just doing something just because it's biblical 
per se, but what, what do you, what do you mean by that? I guess is the question. Yeah, I think, so first of all, yes, I think it does actually say a lot about um, the church structures that some denominations think about themselves in a more global perspective and some in a more domestic or, you know, sure, yeah. I think that says actually a lot about our ecclesiology and about our church structures, you know, the, the modern church structures. So, and I think that the conversation must be global. So those particular denominations are ahead of the game on that one because the conversation has to be global. You can't be a Christian apart from being a part of God's family. That's just, that's what the Bible teaches. So you are a Christian because you belong to his family. And so I think part of what maybe destroyed that understanding or perspective are the ways in which we invited people to come into the church. Those those of us that were, you know, shared a, a gospel message, for example, in which there was an individual interacting mm-hmm. with God. And then that's the whole gospel message is you and God, you and God. That's actually not at all biblical. You come into faith and the communion to God as you accept being a part of his family and his mission. God's people is the ultimate destination. So how that looks, that would be very, that's the question, right? So yeah. church structures change, they come and go. And to be honest with you, I mean, I wrote this in the chapter that I wrote for Still Evangelical about the question, like, are you still evangelical? And, you know, what does that right. mean for you? And I just said, you know, if what we have right now in white Western evangelicalism, if what we have right now is not working, then, and it's, it's basically dead, you know, like it, there's no life in it. There's no transformation. There's no ability to transform. If what is there is not really reflecting who God is or what God's about or what his people are about, then let it die mm-hmm. and let yeah, something absolutely. else, let something else resurrect. So I'm speaking less about denominations and I'm speaking more about the church as a okay, unit, yeah. as a people that work together. I mean, denominations are helpful because they help us convene, you know, <laughs> but there, I think there are two different questions in me. One is, you know, if these denominations are broken, then I'm like, okay, well, let's start some new ones or <laughs> let's bring reformation to the ones that exist, you know, depending on who you are. That's why you see huge church planting movements and kind right. of that kind of like church, church as a small group, which is awesome. Um, and then some people feel really called to bring reform to the denominations they're a part of because they see them as useful and helpful and important in gathering that collective of people that are connected to that denomination. So I think part of it is an issue of calling. Like some people feel very called to reform their denominations and the church spaces they're in and their local body. And I think that we should champion that if that's what they feel called to do. And other people feel really designed just their personality and temperament and their calling to try new things that would reflect biblical principles of what it looks like for God's people to be together, living in community, shaping their and transforming the, the place where they're present, holding one another accountable, submitting to one another. Um, I think those are the things that are important. And if they feel like the church structures that exist don't allow for that, then plant some churches, you know, mm-hmm. um, and see if, if there's a different way. So I think it's less about the denominational structures and more about the fact that I think a lot of people honestly don't want to do it because they want to leave because it's difficult to be in community with and in submission to people that you don't agree with on all the things. Mm -hmm. And if that's what you're looking for, you're just not going to find it. Right. Yeah. You're just not going to find it because you're never going to be in agreement with all everything and if you don't want to be in submission to people that you don't agree with on everything, then 
what you're actually practicing is just a form of individualism and arrogance. Hmm. That's my opinion. <laughs> maybe it's cultural as the Latina. Maybe it's, you know, I mean, I, I love the church. I think um, it can be changed. You know, I love church planting. I think they should keep be doing it. But I think a lot of the conversation I have with people is it, we're, in, we're in a season, I really believe, we're in a season as God's people, and particularly in North America, in the U.S., that is very polarized. It's oh, yeah, absolutely schism. So it's like, if I can't agree with you on every single point that you agree with me on, you're not in my tribe. I'm going to go make another tribe versus right. saying, okay, what does it look like to have three of the five things we agree with? What are the crucial things we agree with? So I remember, I always tell people this when they're trying to decide if they're going to leave their church or not, because a lot of times they'll come and say, hey, can I talk to you? <laughs> I'm thinking about leaving my church. And I always tell them, you know, I had to do this exercise in seminary where we had to write a philosophy of ministry paper and we had to have like our essentials. Like mm-hmm. these are things were with like levels of orthodoxy. Like these are things that must be theologically or you know tangibly present in order for me to believe this is a Christian expression. And then it was like things that are essential. Like it's not a matter of orthodoxy, but it's important to me personally. Right. Um, and then it was like things I... I don't remember what the category was like, but it was like things I would like, you know, like I would like there to be X, Y, and Z. And sure. our professor said, if you have more than three things in the essential category, then you're never going to find a church. Mm. So pick three that are like deal breakers, basically. Right, right. Um, and another professor said to me and mentor said to me, you know, Sandra, finding a church is like finding the dog with the least fleas. You know, it's kind of like, what can you handle? You know, it's more about like, what. so I made those. Like, I will not be a part of a church that does not, for me, not for everybody. I will not be a part of a church. My essentials were a church that affirms women at every level of leadership. I mean, I'm a pastor, so that's, a, that's, right. a, that's an essential for me. The other one was it, ha- it has to be a community of people that is practicing in tangible ways a concern for those who are disenfranchised and vulnerable. And it could look in lots of different ways, but it, that had to be a part of it. And then the other one was, it has to be a church that is practicing discipling people in scripture. Like that was very important to me. So those are my three. Other classmates had like, it must have an elder board versus congregational or it must have, I didn't even understand how that was essential, but that's essential for that. <laughs> and things that I really care about that would be nice would be like, I want to be in a diverse church. So anybody who knows me would know, of course she would want to be in a diverse right. church, but it wasn't actually essential to me. And the reason was because I knew that it was a possibility that I could be in an all Latino, Latina church or an all African-American church. If those were the spaces that were both affirming to women, you know, rooted in the Bible as a regular practice of teaching the congregants scripture, and then also caring for those on the margins. So I just knew that I was like, it would be great if it could be diverse, but I'm not willing. That would be like number four if I had a fourth, but my professor said I could only pick three. So (laughs) that has served me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's served people that I've walked with in that question of like, we're just, we're not always going to agree. And I think particularly in 2019, more than any other, I mean, more than any other season I can remember in ministry, things are so polarizing right now. I feel it as a speaker. I feel it as a pastor. It's like people, you think they're your friends until you don't agree with them on everything. And all of a sudden, you know, Right. And then people are thinking, oh, I I can't be that person's friend anymore because they don't agree with me about everything that I believe, which is crazy. I appreciate too that your three essentials were 
all actions or action related, like affirming women in leadership, a concern for the poor, you know, versus like, I guess they are a theology versus like some sort of theological belief, although they're rooted in a theological belief for sure. The essentials idea reminded me of when I was dating my husband because I wasn't Catholic at the time. I was very much Protestant. And early on when we were dating, we had this conversation. It was relatively emotional on what are our essentials? Can we date one another? Are these hills that we would die on? For him, he, you know, his beliefs about just different teachings of the church, where I was like, that's not something that's essential for me whatsoever. Is it really that essential for you? Is it okay that we disagree? Yes, it is. You know, so it's interesting because for me, I'm hearing what you're saying about deciding if this church fits you. And I'm remembering whether or not I could even marry my husband well, and it worked out. Oh yeah. Like I remember when I was in my, t- <laughs> I was talking like, I remember when I was in my twenties, my list of like, these are the 10 things a guy would have to have in order to like be in my presence. <laughs> right? you know? And then by the time I was in my thirties, I was like, here are the three really important things to me. You know, um, right. and I think, I think part of that is it's not, I don't think it's desperation. I think it's maturity. You know, it's like, yeah, absolutely. What really matters? What really right. matters are these three things. Cause I know no matter, even if you marry someone that has all the 10 things, it's still going to be work, you know? And actually leads me to something that I, I do often teach a lot when I'm speaking is that, you know, we have this thing in the church where we believe things theologically and then we we actually invest in only some of them, but not others. So an example would be like, the Bible says that when we get married, there's this mysterious thing that happens that the two become one and that's a mystery, mm-hmm. right? So two people become one, one new unit. And it's not like people say, oh, bless you. You know, you're, you're not one unit, go and have fun. You have marriage counseling, you have premarital counseling, you have workbooks you do, you have conversations you have, you know, you talk about how do you both view family? How do you both view money? How do you both view sex? You have lots of conversations. Right. If you had, you know, good preparation towards marriage. You have at least six sessions but somehow later on, or, or sorry, earlier on in Ephesians where it says, you know, the, the wall has come down, the wall of hostility has come down, and now two groups of people have become one. There's no classes on that. Nobody has a six-week course on what does that mean, you know? <laughs> yeah. So why is it that we would take one part of Ephesians and really invest in it and understanding what it means that two human beings become one new person, you know, one new unit, and not have the same thing for two groups of people become one new humanity. Why is that that we, do, we don't do that? And that's because the particular people that are in power to shape those things don't think culture, race, ethnicity, social location, socioeconomic class is really like a thing in the church that we wouldn't have to work on. Now, you and I know that's different because you know we were part of university and we were like trained in that. But many, many people have never had a class on what does it mean to love one another when love is expressed differently in different cultures. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be honest with one another when honesty is expressed differently in different cultures? Some direct, some indirect, some through words, some not. So I think those are the things that I'm really trying to get at in the next worship is like, you know, there's work to be done. And that work means you're not always going dis- to, you're not always going to agree. And that conflict and tension leads to discontent. And what happens when you're discontented? You can't just walk away. Mm-hmm. You got to work it out unless it's one of your essential things that you feel like you just can't do. So related to that, then we often hear the phrase lead, don't leave. But in many church settings, women are not readily offered a seat at the table, like the leadership table, I should say. What encouragement or wisdom would you offer specifically to women who want to see that change, 
but don't necessarily have a space at the table where their voices are heard. So there are a few things that I think have worked for me over the years. The first thing is to really know God's call in your life, like just to know what you're called to and to not be in spaces that don't allow you to live that out or, or okay. aren't willing to change. So I don't think that means you have to leave right away, but I do think it means you have to take a really sober look at where you're at and whether or not that space is malleable or changeable because ultimately we're responsible for the call God has on our lives. And we need to make decisions that allow us to do that. We're responsible. Nobody can take that away from us. So I think if we know what that is, then we have the confidence to, you know, to move forward. I think secondly, having allies is very important and knowing who those people in influence are and building relationship and investing in those people. So let me give you an example. When I went to seminary, I was like, okay, clearly on the first day of preaching, some kid turned to me and said, and a kid, I say kid because he was 22. Some kid <laughs> turned to me, I was in my thirties and said, well, what do you think about women preaching? On my first day of preaching class, you know, I wanted to strangle him. And so I was like, <laughs> I think it's awesome. And I do it all the time. You know, like, I was like right. <laughs> um, and then as the professor went around, it turns out that, you know, the, the few women that were in that preaching class, we all had preached a hundred sermons or more. Right. And most of the men had never preached. Um, because most of the women that had gone to seminary were like a little bit more advanced in their maturity and their age and the men were younger. So that's kind of mm. generally what's happening. But I thought to myself, how am I going to survive this experience if this is like my first day of preaching class, you know? And this 22-year-old, no experience, arrogant, like I was just like, I was so mad. I literally almost strangled him. And how am I going to survive this? I can't have every conversation. I can't influence every person. Like it's me and like 20 men, you know, how am I going to do this? And I really appreciated a friend of mine who gave me the advice that I should just see where God is opening the door for me to invest in influence. And so I did. I basically, through the process of just friendship and listening, there were about six, five or six guys I felt like these are people that are doing fantastic things that are asking great questions. We don't all agree on the, we don't all, I don't always agree with them, but I just feel affinity. I feel humility. I feel partnership. And so I'm going to invest in them. And on our like last year, well, my last year, many of them had already graduated, but as they were graduating, because it took me a long time, as they were graduating, I realized that all of those men that Every single one of those men that I had spent time investing into had won some kind of like president's award, alumni award, some kind of big award from the university during the student awards. And that what God had done is he had given me an ability to select who would be the people that would be influential, that could not only be allies to me, but allies to women and ethnic minorities ongoing. And so I think being very strategic about where you invest your time, because if I would have had every conversation with every man there on every issue of gender or ethnicity or culture or, you know, mission, I would have been so exhausted. And I'm not there to give them a free education. I mean, if I'm going to do that, they should pay me, you know? <laughs> so I think that one thing is like really discerning where you find allies and people that will be... I think not only partners to you, but partners to women in general or, you know, to women of color in general. So I think that's the second one is find allies. And then I think the third one is make your own table. So mm -hmm. if there are spaces where you're not allowed at the table, um, start making your own tables. 
And I think that particularly women of color, we're really trying to do that. We're like, we're not accepted in the white women's spaces. We're not accepted in the white man spaces. We're not even sometimes accepted in spaces where it's our own ethnic group and it's all men. So we're just going to make our own tables because we're not sure if there ever will be made room at the table. And then as we do that, we're not, we're not going to operate out of scarcity or create tables that don't have the ability to put leaves inside of them to make more space. Mm. So I think really discerning what God has for you, finding allies to do it with, and then creating new spaces. I think those are important things. And I think, I mean, I, I would say it assumes, so let me clarify, it assumes that you would be doing this in community. Right. Absolutely. So you see a lot of these like speakers collectives and writers collectives and, you know, kind of girlfriends getting together once a year, girlfriends in ministry getting together once a year to just tell stories and cry and get massages. You know, like, I I think those are the spaces (laughs) that, that we need to have to just take care of ourselves in community to reboot for the next season. But I can't tell someone whether they should leave or not leave. I don't know their call. You know, I don't know if they've explored all the allies within the system that they're working in. And sometimes we make like tables within those systems that maybe would be in the same church, but you're trying to imagine or reimagine something new. So going back to your time pursuing your MDiv, we often talk a lot about the challenges that we face as women in academia. But instead of just focusing on the challenges, can you share one experience where you encountered Jesus? I mean, I would hope you encountered Jesus multiple times as you pursued, particularly an MDiv. But could you share one story of an encounter with Christ in your time in that setting? I feel like I encountered Christ every day in my MDiv experience. Uh, I would, <laughs> I stay on the front row and I cried through most of my lectures. <laughs> and I stopped apologizing it for it because I felt like we are encountering God's truth together in this holy space. And if you guys are just like playing solitaire, I don't know what to do with you. So, but I think things, I think what you're looking at is like positive experiences where God was really present with me. I think the one I shared earlier about just like really the gift of the Holy Spirit leading me to particular partners that would would be great allies and they're doing fantastic things today, seven years later, eight years later. And so I, I really believe that that's the encouragement an encouragement to me. Like, look, there are people out there that, that want to live justly and rightly in the church and you have the ability, we have the ability to influence them and to be a part of their discipleship and formation. And so being there and being present, I think, was a, a gift to me in shaping me theologically, but also I think to the people that are there with us when we're in those spaces. And I think that is an encouragement to me as someone who really does want to influence people, which I think a lot of university staff or pastors, that's why we're there. We want, we want to form people. We want to disciple people. And so I think when we show up in those spaces to, to show up with your full self really is meaningful because our tears, I think, are transformative for other people. But I think one funny story was one time I was taking a class it was a Greek exegesis class and it was like the top, you know, kind of like the top students in the, in the beginning Greek classes were put together for this kind of like, you get to take it with a special professor, you know, like he's really, really good. <laughs> and this special professor who's really, really good does not believe that women should be preaching. So oh. yeah, it was fantastic. I was the only woman <laughs> in the class. I was in there with another university staff male who, who uh, I won't name, but anyway, so he, he, so we used to, we had lots of jokes for class. But anyway, <laughs> this experience was really interesting because whenever I would present my paper, my one verse, we were studying Colossians, the professor was really attentive. You could tell he was engaged. And then 
many times, like almost every time afterwards, he would encourage me and he would say, you know, Sandra, I think that you have a real gift for understanding God's word. Like it's one thing to come up here and, and just regurgitate everything you read in a commentary, you know, Mm -hmm. and just say, this person says this, and this person says this. It's another thing to actually, to develop the central truth around that verse and passage. And to then to talk about how this would be transformative for a community of people. And he said, you just do that so well. You know, and so he would always be encouraging me. He actually encouraged me to teach beginning Greek, which I thought was hilarious. And then one time I was speaking at a conference. This was like just, I think, when my kind of speaking in national spaces was beginning to increase. And I was super nervous. So I sent an email to him and said, hey, just wanted to let you know that I'm speaking at this conference at Wheaton. And you know, I was, I was speaking alongside of John Perkins. So it was like mm-hmm. John Perkins, activist, world changer, you know, like, right, um, yeah. and Standard Monops, so like, who's this girl? <laughs> so I was speaking at this conference and I said, I'm speaking alongside of John Perkins on the issue of transforming urban centers, you know, the kind of work in the city. And I, I really could use prayer. So he sent it out to the whole class and said, dear, you know, advanced Greek exegesis, our esteemed colleague, you know, Sandra Marie Vanopsel is going to be speaking at, this is such an honor. Let's pray for her as she prepares. And I was like, nice. Okay. So here I thought like, here's a person who, I don't know how he could reconcile that. I, I don't know how he reconciled, right. like doesn't believe women should be preaching who's championing me. He's not even just allowing, he's championing me. He's encouraging mm-hmm. me. He's elevating me. So I felt like, and he did that for three other women that I know that I was friends with in that experience. And so I felt like, you know, there's just weird things that happen sometimes that the Lord will use to encourage you. Like who knows what was happening for him? I don't know, but I do know that God was present in that. And it would have been different if it was a professor who felt like, yeah, women, you know, women should have every position of authority, but this was someone who fundamentally didn't believe I should be opening up God's word in front of men who was encouraging me. And I don't know, maybe the Lord used that in his life in some way. So I think that is one of many, many experiences. But if I had to go back and do my MDiv again, I would do it in exactly the same space that I did it in. Mm -hmm. And I think I remember a mentor of mine, which I left out in the, how did I get there? But a mentor of mine said, you know, Sandra, as a woman who wants to mobilize the church in the area of justice, as a woman of color who wants to mobilize the church in the area of justice, as a woman of color who wants to mobilize the church in the area of justice and specifically focus on white evangelicals, it would really help you to have both the framework and the credential of this type of seminary. Mm. And so I spent more money and went there because I trusted him and he championed me and coached me all the way through the program. And I would do exactly the same thing again because it prepared me in a very distinct way to both understand where people are coming from and even if people want to discount what I have to say, they can't discount the tutoring that I've had or the credential that I've had. And so um, recently I was at a gathering with staff of color with InterVarsity. And I said to them, if you're a woman in this room and you know that God has called you to ministry full-time, like long-term full-time ministry, you cannot afford not to get a seminary degree. Hmm. Because we don't have the advantages that men have when they walk into a room in white evangelical churches or in our own, to that matter. And as a person of color, if we want to talk about issues of reconciliation, justice, wholeness, diversity, we will be discounted because it seems like it's a self-serving thing versus a biblical mandate. 
And so we just can't afford to do a certification or self-teach or no, you need the credential. You need the letters. And that's just, it's not fair, but it is the way it is. So if I can help you get there in any way, we could talk about, you know, the financial hurdles we have to hit or the space as, as people who are in full-time ministry. I just, I truly believe specifically for women of color, we cannot afford not to get the degree. Hmm. Well, then completely shifting back to something you brought up earlier, making lunches and family life. So shifting gears all the way back. How do you work out the balance of family life and vocation? How do you make that work in your own family? What has been good and what hasn't worked as well? Um, well, as you know, from trying to get scheduled, this schedule with me, it, it, I'm still working on it. <laughs> I'm still working on it. Um, I am really trying to um, start a revolution and remember to pack lunches. So um, <laughs> I work it out with my husband because I'm married. So, and I know not everyone is, but I think if you are, you have, it has to be a dialogue between you and your spouse. What does it look like for our family in this season? One of my sons is a, a foster son. And so first time I'm actually talking about it publicly, but it changes when you add two kids, anybody who has children, you know, when you go from one to two kids, it changes. When you go from one to two kids and you have no history of the child, mm. it makes things very difficult to make sure that you're giving enough space, you know? And so I think there were some things we, I didn't anticipate as far as like making what, what does enough space look like? And so um, my husband and I, I mean, we have to work it out as, as partners, you know, what does this look like for our family? Can I do this thing? You know, so sometimes I'm like, I have to ask my husband if I can do that. Other, other women will laugh. Like you have to ask for permission. I'm like, absolutely. Because then when I leave for three days, you know, poor Carl stuck with the boys by himself. So yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, conversations with your spouse, if you're married, with your community, if you're single, I mean, if you're single, you better have a community that's holding you accountable to your time because people, I know I was single all through my twenties into my thirties and people thought like, oh, Sandra's got time. She could do more. And I think that's how I picked up my or enhance my workaholism tendencies was because people thought I could do more. So I think single or married, you need to have a community of people that hold you accountable to your time that help you think about balance. If you have the ability to, like I hired someone five hours a week to assist me and it's not a lot, but it sure helps because every Monday she holds my hands and tells me what I have to do for the rest of the week in my church, in my outside ministry, on my projects with my family, you know, and some of it's just like, don't, don't forget to eat lunch, you know, like, so right. Well, yeah. yeah, don't forget. So there's like a calendar insert in my, there's a calendar um, reminder every day at 1130, like eat lunch, you know, and if, if it mm. rains, I just have to snooze it till I get it again. Um, <laughs> Cause I wasn't eating. That's just, it's true. I wasn't eating. No, that um, happens. I think a lot too, for our, our community of listeners might have a lot of grad students and med students and even faculty where oh yeah, eat. meals, meals are like, the last priority, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. So meal prep on Sunday for the rest of the week, you got to eat. So I actually, I, I had a friend of mine who's uh, was starting a business as a nutrition, as a health kind of consultant and nutritionist. And I just had her like help me figure out how to, how can I figure out how to make breakfast so I can eat breakfast? And is it like, I can choose to either eat breakfast or shower or feed my kids. Like I get one of those. So which one is it? You know, it's going to be feed my kids, you know? And so I think we still, I would say like practice the Sabbath, you know, like my husband and I have, we've been practicing the Sabbath since our university days. They taught us that the world won't fall apart if you stop working. Mm -hmm. Um, So we practice the Sabbath 
Saturday to Sunday. And we only see people that are life-giving and we only do things that are life-giving and we don't work and um, we spend time with our family or with our friends. And so I think that's an important finding rhythms of work and rest. I mean, you know, Ruth Haley Barton's Sacred Rhythms or Invitation to Silence and Solitude. I think those are fantastic books to start with. But I think having developing a pattern of work and rest and then having a community hold you accountable to that and more and more just learning to say no, which I'm not very good at, but I try. And sometimes Crystal just says no for me. My assistant, she just says, no, you can't do that. So submitting yourself to others who know you better. I think that's, that's a part of it, but definitely eat some breakfast. If you're listening to this, eat some breakfast. It can be part of breakfast, an essential part maybe, but not the entirety of it. Well, hearing just about how you keep it all together reminds me to thank you so much for sharing your time with our community and our listeners. So finally then to conclude, what have been some words, either a song or a quote or scripture that have been speaking to you lately? Oh, okay. There is a song that we sing often at church and it says that God is a way maker and a miracle worker and a promise keeper and a light in the darkness the song says, my God, that's who you are. And so I think that song repeats in my head all the time. Like when I'm, when I'm doing the work that I'm doing in my community as a pastor, when I'm on the road advocating for detained children or separated families in our immigration system, when I'm trying to compel folks that are very removed socioeconomically or racially from the injustices in our country, I'm always, I think, singing that song in my head. And then because we sing it so often at church when I return on Sundays, I'm so happy to sing it in community because in my community at Grace and Peace, I'm singing this song with a group of people who know what it's like to hang on to God and God alone because they don't have always the economic or social support systems that they need. And so they are crying out to God telling God that he is the only one who makes a way and he is a God who keeps his promises and he is a God who allows us to be light in the darkness. So I think that is for me what keeps me hanging on is I know who God is and I repeat that to myself because I don't push back on evil. God does. I don't change systems. God does. I don't even really have that much control over what my kids do. I can influence them, but ultimately I leave them in God's hands. For the classes that I teach um, as a professor, like I don't know if what I'm saying or doing is making a difference all the time, but I know that God is present there and that his word is is living and active. And so I think that for me has been has been very, very instrumental. Not only the song, Waymaker, but also the experience of singing that in a congregation full of people who really in many ways are holding on to that as this, the the sole truth that carries them from Monday through Saturday. Hmm. Would it be too on the spot to ask you to sing a little bit of it? Uh, I could. <laughs> okay. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God. That is who you are, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, 
Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Amen. Well, thank you so much again for your time and your wisdom and and singing for us even. You're welcome. Only for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.introversity.org.